Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 32 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a Rust Belt recruiting production. I am your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Beth Dawson, Senior Apprenticeship Program Manager at Manufacturing Works, and Sarah Tracy, the Managing Director at the Ohio Manufacturers Association. Thank you both for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Beth, we'll start with you. Give us the high-level overview of your company and your role within it, and then uh, we'll go to Sarah. Sure, happy to. Um, So Manufacturing Works is an economic development organization. Uh, We are more than 30 years old. Uh, We were founded to support manufacturers on the west side of Cleveland, so we are formerly known as WireNet. We have since expanded our interest to support manufacturers in 12 counties in Northeast Ohio and have almost 300 members that we are supporting. And our mission is simply to strengthen and help grow the manufacturing industry in Northeast Ohio. Um, We do that through our programs that focus on technology Uh, workforce development, and sustainability. So like succession planning. Um, We also, uh, I guess, specifically in our workforce development area, which is my area, um, we do have a high school program. So we're in Max Hayes High School uh, on the west side of Cleveland and have been pretty much since we started uh, this organization 30 years ago. Uh, We're also in Euclid High School, and this year we are in Shaker Heights High School as well, Um, and they have um, an agreement with, it's called the Heights Consortium, so it's Shaker Heights and Cleveland Heights and Bedford Heights and Warrensville Heights, Um, and those students can all gather at uh, Shaker for career and technical training. Um, So then from the youth program, we have the adult pre-apprenticeship program, which is brand new to Manufacturing Works. Um, That is just getting launched this spring. So that's really exciting where we're recruiting people who are interested in not just a job in manufacturing, but a career pathway uh, that will lead to a registered apprenticeship program that could be a commitment anywhere from two to four years. And then uh, the registered apprenticeship program Manufacturing Works is the sponsor of registered apprenticeships. So I manage 23 companies and 24 apprentices, and that number is growing. Uh, And my job is to oversee all of the uh, related technical instruction, making sure that the apprentices get what they need, um, tracking on-the-job training, and then supporting our manufacturers in any way I can. So I will pause there because you asked for high level and I think I'm talking too much. <laughs> no, never. that's very helpful. Um, Sarah, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. So um, I work for the Ohio Manufacturers Association, which has been around since um, 
1910, I believe. We had our 110th anniversary a couple of years ago. So um, our mission is to protect and grow Ohio manufacturers. So really similar mission to Manufacturing Works, just on a slightly larger scale um, statewide instead of just the region. Um, historically, the Manufacturing Association has been all about advocacy, things like tax, finance, uh, human resources, um, workers' compensation, those kinds of things. In the last five, six years, the OMA has expanded to include workforce development because um, the, the board of directors started saying to our president at the time, Eric Berkland, hey, workforce is actually our, our biggest limiting factor in our ability to grow and our ability to, to, to take some of our new products to scale. So how can you help? So that's how I got involved. I started as a consultant to the OMA about five, six years ago, and then came on board as a full-time staff um, about a year and a half ago as the Managing Director of Workforce Services. But what we do in this new role is support industry sector partnerships. So those are, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, manufacturer-led partnerships at the regional level who are looking to solve their workforce shortages or skill shortages by working together manufacturers um, schools organizations like manufacturing works all coming together to collectively solve those problems so my job is to support those organizations and to help administer um, and implement grant funded projects like the um, ohio manufacturing workforce partnership scaling apprenticeship grant which beth and i um, have met each other through so um, those are the kinds of things that i work on but it's all in service of the Ohio manufacturers needs to grow their businesses. Um, and so everything I do is driven by uh, what are the manufacturers asking for? Awesome. Got it. Okay. Um, Beth, let's go to you. Talk to us about the concept of being an apprentice. It seems um, light, lifetimes ago, this was like the clear path and how you progress through a career um, somewhere along the way, I think we got away from that. Um, I think we, it was less formal. People had mentors, people had people they looked up to and kind of looked out for them, but it was just, it turned into a much less formal thing. Um, how has that evolved? You know, I don't, I don't want to say the last hundred years, of course, who could answer that. Right. But like, how has that evolved just in, in the terms of like the concept changing? And then where do you see that going in the future? Are we going to see more apprenticeships or less or, or the same? Well, I think that's a great question, Paul, and thank you for asking it. Um, full disclosure, I've been in workforce development a long time, but newer to the apprenticeship space. So I think Sarah might have some more historical context that she could offer, but I can certainly share what I've learned. Um, I think that way back when, apprenticeships were really led by labor unions. Mm -hmm. And as labor unions have become less popular, I think the concept of apprenticeship has kind of gotten lost in the sauce. Um, since I started my job, uh, which was May in 2020, um, I, one of the first things I asked was why would, why would a manufacturer not want an apprentice? And one of the first things I heard was that there was some fear of labor union that, you know, manufacturers did not want their 
organization to turn into a union shop. And so when you use the word apprentice or journeyman, journey workers card, you know, all of those things um, kind of turn people away. And it was one of the things that I had to learn really quickly is that in the state of Ohio, um, apprentices don't receive a journey workers card. They receive a certificate of apprenticeship, which is equivalent to a journey workers card. It is a nationally recognized credential. Um, so I would say that is one big thing um, that manufacturers kind of had some, had taken a step back. Um, another thing that I've heard, and it pains me every time, is that a manufacturer will say, well, what if I invest all this time and money into this person and then they leave? Well, you can ask the opposite question too. Well, what if they stay? So, you know, I went and did my homework as I was trying to learn how to be the best at this job. And I found out that nationally, there's a 92% uh, retention rate that by and large, companies that invest in their people, their people are going to stay. Um, you know, that's kind of the national statistic. But then you could talk to some of the manufacturers that are a part of my apprenticeship consortium, and they'll tell you what apprenticeship has done to change and improve the culture within their organizations. There are companies that we have one company that's putting two apprentices in to a maintenance apprenticeship every other year. So there is a cohort-based model. Those two apprentices have each other. They pay their apprentices while they're going to school. And, and people around them are saying, wow, I want this opportunity. So every two years when they post the job posting, people are lining up to take advantage of those opportunities. So, and, and from the employer's perspective is, they're faced with one of two things, especially now in, in the, the workforce that we're, we're dealing with in this climate. You can either build your talent or you can buy it. And as manufacturers, you'd be really smart to do what you do and do it well, and that's building it. So if you're building your internal bench, then you don't have the same worries as the other manufacturer that is way behind and scurrying now to try to buy that talent in a climate where it's really competitive and the prices have gone up substantially. So all that being said, Paul, I think that the, everything is changing and it's changing for the better. You know, I think COVID taught us that the, what we, we knew was coming with the, the baby boomers retiring um, it suddenly with COVID, it became what they called the silver tsunami, that boomers were leaving uh, way more quickly than was anticipated. And when those guys leave and gals, their knowledge goes out the door with them. And the most important part of an apprenticeship is that transfer of knowledge from the, the older worker to their younger protege. That's what makes the apprenticeship work. And so I think manufacturers eyes became open. They're looking at their pipeline. They're looking at how many folks are slated to retire in the next four years. And they're saying, oh no, we got a problem here. And then I think the last thing I'll say is that the, the support of funding that is now available from the federal government that has bipartisan support, which doesn't happen very often in government. Um, there's a lot of dollars being allocated to apprenticeship 
And as a, as a result, Manufacturing Works was able to establish a partnership with Cuyahoga County, Ohio Means Jobs. Oftentimes, manufacturers don't want to go through the burden of applying for government funding. So Manufacturing Works went ahead and applied for government funding on behalf of all of the companies that are part of our apprenticeship consortium. And what resulted from that is that Ohio Means Jobs will pay 100% of tuition, books, and fees for all of the apprentices that are part of our apprenticeship consortium in Cuyahoga County. For manufacturers that are outside of Cuyahoga County, Ohio Tech Cred will also reimburse up to $2,000 per year per apprentice. So it's really, it's almost free. Why would someone not wanna do it, especially now? Yep. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. You make a lot of good points. Um, the the concept of you either build your talent or you buy it and and to have to buy right now is going to cost you a lot more, right? In, inflation affects, uh, you know, the price of groceries and the price of gas, but it also affects the price of labor, right? So um, yeah, and, and, and then the, the age old quote of, you know, what if we train these people and they leave? Well, what if we don't train them and they stay? That's the worst. So, so train them. So train them, right? Um, right. Sarah, let's go to you. Talk to us about, I'm always fascinated by this and like who should be doing the outreach, but talk to us about how you foster relationships between education and employment or education and government. What does that look like? And who should be doing the outreach, right? Like who should call first? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think, you know, Beth said it a minute ago, you know, a lot of times manufacturers, they don't want to go ask the government for money. They don't want to apply for that program or fill out that form. And I think that was a big barrier to adoption of apprenticeship also, as they said, well, I'm, I'm already training my people. Why do I have to fill out a bunch of paperwork for it? Well, the reason these days is because the government is investing in registered apprenticeships. So if you're not going to register your program, you can't get the money. So I think that the the role that folks like Beth play is so, so critical. And it, it does come down to who's building the relationship and who's doing the outreach. So I mentioned sector partnerships when I was introducing myself. And we think that those are a, a critical piece in this infrastructure because sector partnerships take all of the partners, it's built into the name, all of the partners in the system and create one front door. So if I am a manufacturer and I don't have the first idea about how to build a program, where to find the funding, which training program in my backyard is the best, uh, I don't know any of that. If there's a sector partnership in my region, I can just make one phone call and the sector partnership staff can introduce me to everybody. Um, and it's the same, it works in the, in the reverse with an education provider. You know, every... Um, Every person around the state who is running, let's say, a machining or an industrial maintenance program, they have goals to introduce their students to potential jobs, um, you know, interviews. They have, they want to be able to set people up with pre-apprentices and apprenticeships. And, and so they need to go knocking on doors and saying, hey, ABC Machining, do you need any interns? Well, that's a lot of work, too, for somebody who is also trying to manage an education program. Well, that 
educator can also knock on the door of the industry sector partnership and say, who's hiring right now? And the sector partnership can go out and talk to those 20 manufacturers. So it is all about creating a convener or an intermediary, we call it, regionally who knows everybody, knows what's going on, knows what what funding is available and can kind of be that super connector or matchmaker. So I would say, you know, if in a perfect world, every community would have a sector partnership and anybody who wanted to do something with workforce development would start by knocking on the door of their sector partnership. Um, where things get complicated is not every community has a sector partnership yet. Um, this is a relatively new solution. In Ohio for manufacturing, we have about 68 out of 88 counties have a sector partnership, but that's still a good chunk who don't. And so what do you do when you're in one of those counties? Well, you can reach out to us at the OMA. Um, we have lots of, we have a directory on our website. We also have, you know, we're talking about apprenticeship in this call. There is a project manager for every county in the state, all 88, who is responsible for matchmaking around apprenticeship. So we can get you that list. Um, but I think the, the specific question you asked, Paul, who should make the first call? I think that really depends, right? Because it, it, to me, it is about who has the greatest need. And so if you are a manufacturer and you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I've got 12 open jobs that I could fill tomorrow. Don't wait for people to knock on your door. Call your local career center, call the community college, call Beth. Um, find the people in your community who are already working with your potential employees and ask them what's going on. Um, but if you're an educator and you're thinking, you know, I've got these 12 students who need jobs, don't, don't wait either, right? So it is really about, you know, we all have something that can benefit each other. And we need to not be afraid to, to collaborate on those things. So um, if there is a sector partnership, that's your front door. If there's not, build the front door together. I like that, build it together. I like that. Um, switching gears a little bit, this is for both of you, but uh, you know, we can start with Sarah. Let's talk about the challenges that women face in the manufacturing space, specifically if there are barriers to entry, um, and then kind of a two-part, the second part to that, what positive changes have we seen in recent years and what, what still needs to be done? Um, so Sarah, we can start with you. Yeah, it's such a great question, such an important question, because if you look at the data, and OMA loves data, we're always pulling down studies and, and commissioning folks to, to analyze the data or create a new survey, and the latest is that we're seeing, we all know that manufacturing is an older, whiter, more male industry than what our communities are. But what's shocking is the the discrepancy between men and women in manufacturing is much greater than any of those others. It's greater than the, the age discrepancy. It's greater than the, the race and ethnicity discrepancy. So if women make up 51% of American of the American population, we're only 30% of the manufacturing industry's workforce. So there's 20% room for growth. And I think that that is, it's just critical for manufacturers to think about why that is and how they can do it, 
how they can do recruiting, hiring, training, retention differently, because the industry can't survive if they're not communicating with and engaging half the population. So we are seeing some really great strides around this and important initiatives that are starting to wake people up to the discrepancy and bring people in. We have um, things like um, the Manufacturing Institute, our national workforce development um, entity for manufacturers has their Step Ahead program, which is about highlighting women leaders across the country and helping them to become mentors of other women. We have a program called Wise Pathways, Women in Sustainable Employment here in Ohio that's all about attracting women. Um, but I think even more granular is the work that individual companies are doing. So one of the things, you know, we've talked about COVID a little bit. We've seen so many people leave the workforce because of childcare, elder care, family responsibilities that are just more difficult in the face of a pandemic than at any other time in our lives. And well, the numbers are decreasing for new COVID cases and hospitalizations, those, those demands on people's time are still there. And so one of the things that I'm hearing every time I talk to a manufacturer or a woman in manufacturing is that flexibility is paramount. And it's not a surprise to anybody that manufacturing isn't historically the most flexible industry. We have shifts. We start at 6 a.m. and we work until two and there's mandatory overtime. And you know, this we need coverage. We need to be running the line 24 hours a day. And so it is culturally not a flexible industry. What I'm seeing is companies that have never before allowed for flex time, never considered part-time work, never considered, you know, we can stagger start times based on school drop-offs and pickups. They're starting to do that. And that's a really, really encouraging thing to me to see that companies who have had this really structured shift work mentality are starting to say, okay, this is what the workforce needs right now. And so we're gonna adopt those practices so that we can be more welcoming to women. Um, and the other thing I'll say before I know Beth has probably got as many things to say about this topic as I do, um, is one of the things that I think is really interesting is, of course, there are barriers to women in the workforce, um, and some of those are around kind of the culture on the job, and I think some of that is perception, right? You know, we have movies that, that really kind of demonize the manufacturing industry for women and, and make it seem like a really awful place. Um, but what I've seen is that women, especially young women who are going into manufacturing for the first time and getting these jobs are pleasantly surprised at how supportive and welcoming their, their colleagues are. Um, I interviewed a woman recently who um, had worked at Taco Bell and, um, you know, she worked at a drive through at two, three in the morning and was constantly being harassed by people coming in for their tacos. And she said, you know, the, the difference between being on the drive through and working third shift here at this factory is night and day. And I feel so supported here and everyone wants me to succeed. And, you know, they 
share information and encourage me. And, you know, so not only is it better pay, better benefits, but also better environment, a more supportive environment. So I think we just have to get out there and tell those stories. These young women are coming in and thriving. Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love this topic. Um, I, I echo everything Sarah just said. I would also add, um, I think the first thing I wanna say is that according to the Manufacturing Institute, if we hire 10% more women into manufacturing jobs, we close the workforce gap by 50%, just 10% more. So, you know, from my perspective, as a longtime workforce development person, I would say that it's all about culture. Um, it, companies that understand the importance of workplace culture, and Sarah mentioned quite a few things um, that companies can do to improve their culture. Um, but if, if manufacturers want to attract more people to their company, they've got to change their culture. And it, the same is true for people of color. If, if manufacturing, as Sarah said, typically traditionally white male dominated, if young people, so for example, our high school students, we take our high school students on job shadows and plant tours. If people are touring a facility and they don't see people that look like them, they're likely not going to be interested in coming to work for your organization. The available workforce, it's specifically in Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, your available workforce largely are women and people of color. And we encourage our manufacturers. We're, we've done a lot. Manufacturing Works has done a lot around um, improving workplace culture. Uh, equity is really important to Manufacturing Works as well. Uh, I know our sector partnership is also, in order to work with the sector partnership, they are looking at job quality. So it's going to be, are you offering a fair wage? Are there career pathways? Are there opportunities for women and underrepresented people to come in and thrive in your organization? And we are starting to see that. Um, when I started in May of 2020, I did not have any female apprentices. I now have three female apprentices. Nice. Actually, forgive me, four female apprentices. We just added another one. And three of the four are women of color. And we are absolutely thrilled for them. What that is doing for, what apprenticeship does, whether it's for a woman or not, it takes someone from having very little or no skills and providing them an opportunity to earn a full-time salary while getting paid to upskill, have no debt, and increase their wage to becoming a middle income wage. That is in all of my years in workforce development, I have never seen anything produce those types of outcomes like apprenticeship does. And that's why I love what I'm doing. So um, I support all of my apprentices, but I have my heart is especially with our female apprentices. I love it. Um, Sarah, we'll go back to you. Can you talk to us and tell us about the recent 35 by 30 announcement from the Manufacturing Institute and, and what all that entails? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you said, the Manufacturing Institute is the nonprofit branch of the National Association of Manufacturers. So um, 
they are the focused on workforce development and like the OMA are really focused on the numbers and making sure that things that they do are data driven. So they've been looking at the um, at the manufacturing workforce and the data behind it, the demographics behind it for some time and had identified this, this huge disparity. And so the 35 by 30 goal is to increase the percentage of women in manufacturing to 35% of the workforce by 2030. Um, and there are a number of activities around that, some of which we're partnering with them on. So for instance, um, we're working with the Manufacturing Institute on a series of webinars to educate manufacturers about how to recruit and retain folks from um, underrepresented communities, including women. Um, and so things like everything Beth just talked about, job quality, wages, um, policies and procedures around attendance and flexibility, benefits, um, on on-site childcare, transportation, those kinds of things. So working with the Manufacturing Institute to identify best practices at the at national level and bringing those to the state. Um, but really the Manufacturing Institute is working with state level um, associations like the OMA and with individual manufacturing members of the NAM to say, how can we make tangible actions, tangible goals around changing the face of workforce um, and make commitments to hire, commitments to train, commitments to build apprenticeship programs that accommodate women. Um, so there's, it, this is a new initiative. It was just recently released. There's gonna be a ton more information, um, but the OMA is staying close to it. And we are going to make sure that um, our commitment to diversity and to building up the workforce is working in, um, you know, hand in hand excuse me, with the Manufacturing Institute's goal. You both have answered that. Yes, go. Yes. Thank you. Sorry, I'm chomping at the bit here. We would be remiss, Sarah, if we didn't mention how important women in manufacturing is to this work, right? So mm -hmm. if you don't know who WIM is, Paul, Women in Manufacturing mm -hmm. is a, a national organization. And um, nationally, WIM has a contract with Jobs for the Future. Uh, JFF has some, a substantial amount of funding to um, recruit 750 new apprentices um, in the next four years, and 50% of them have to be from underrepresented populations. So Women in Manufacturing is a partner nationally. And then the Ohio Women in Manufacturing is also part of that work too. So, <coughs> excuse me, I would say, that um, having, and I encourage any woman that I meet in manufacturing, if they're not a part of WIM, to get involved. I think that that's where you find people who are like you and people who understand the challenges that you face. Um, and then the other thing that has not been brought up that I think is super important um, would be for new people getting started in manufacturing. So I, I mentioned that Manufacturing Works is starting a pre-apprenticeship program. So we're, we're taking people who have very little experience either in the workforce, definitely in manufacturing, and, and we're trying to help them to be successful to enter into a registered apprenticeship program. And because Manufacturing Works has connected with Jobs for the Future, 
we were introduced to an organization in central New York called the Manufacturers Association of Central New York. Um, they are an intermediary, much like manufacturing works. And they've got a very robust apprenticeship program and pre-apprenticeship program. And so we've had many meetings with them over the last 18 months as we're preparing to launch this program to identify what the best practices are. And overwhelmingly, we were told supportive services is essential. So we've got to be able to provide people, especially if they're either unemployed or underemployed, they may not have the resources that they need to be successful. So having a coach, making sure that their literacy skills are up to par, and if they're not, what do we need to do to get them there? Um, if transportation is a barrier, let's find that out up front. Let the employer know that up front and having a coach to follow that individual into their employment and through their employment while they get ready to enter into that long-term apprenticeship program is also a key ingredient to success. Thank you. Yeah, onboarding across industries, across, across jobs is so important. And it is something that for whatever the reason, the majority of companies don't get right. You know, they don't invest in, they invest in finding the employee and, and getting them for the interview and, and then hiring them. But that onboarding piece, which most would argue is the most important part. So you're successful in your job. Yeah, I, for whatever the reason, it's, it's somewhat neglected. Yeah, I think a lot of employers, and this is true across industries, not just manufacturing, but a lot of employers, a lot of frontline managers forget that you... You don't walk into your first job on the first day understanding professional norms. I mean, some of us do. Some of us have parents who talk about that around the dinner table or, or teach it intentionally or who go to school, you know, career and tech schools. But a lot of folks, their first time on the job, it's their first introduction to a professional environment. And different companies and different industries have unspoken rules and uns unspoken expectations. And if you don't have somebody who is willing to walk people through that, then of course you're gonna have turnover and churn and folks walking out at lunch and not coming back because they just don't understand. And so I think you know part of that supportive services and wraparound services is coaching on professional norms and helping people to understand, you know, it, might require a conversation with your supervisor to talk about, hey, my childcare situation changed this week. What can we do about it? I'm really in a bind. Can you help? And a lot of times people just think, oh, they don't care about me. They don't care that I'm having this problem. I'm just not going to show up because I don't have a sitter. You know, so it's, and I'm using women because that's the topic today and, and childcare as an example, but it doesn't have to be gendered. It doesn't have to be childcare. It could be you know, my, my car broke down, my, I don't have any running water, so I can't take a shower. There are a million reasons why someone might have trouble getting to work. And if our managers and frontline supervisors aren't accommodating those things and having conversations, then we're just going to keep having to try to find more people to hire. So, uh, We've talked a lot about the initiatives that both your organizations are doing to help, you know, whether break down barriers or um, general awareness about manufacturing for women. In the past two years, um, 
obviously with the pandemic going on, women have been the leading demographic of people leaving the workforce for a variety of reasons. But childcare seems to be the one of the, if not one, it's in the top three of the reasons that um, women are leaving. And I think we've gotten to a point in this country where if women look at what they're making and what childcare is going to cost and say, this doesn't equate and I'm going to quit my job. I, you know, the pendulum has swung way too far in the wrong direction for how expensive childcare is. But uh, that little rant aside, how do we address this in coming years? And what else is, you know, leading to women leaving the workforce? Um, uh, Beth, let's start with you. Yikes. That's such a depressing question, Paul. I mean, it's, it, I, I, I'm a single mom. When my daughter was little, it, the cost for an infant was, I, it was as much as a mortgage, you know? And so it, it was, gosh, it's a blur, thankfully. And they do say it, that that's why you can have more than one child, that it, you know, your struggles become a blur as your kids get older. Um, but so, so it's not an easy solution for sure. And I think that what we're seeing is um, there are some families where they're choosing to have men uh, be the ones to stay home. And, and if that's, if that's a, an option or to have one parent work first shift and another person, a parent work the second shift, you know, it, it's maybe it's relying on extended family. You know, I often wonder if we're gonna start to see foundations um, mm. starting to support this work because it is, it, it's, it's a, a problem that is so big that I'm not sure any one solution is going to bring about, bring about the result that we need. I think it's going to be a combination of where an employer might pitch in more, a funder might pitch in some, and, and then the employee pitches in, you know, we're seeing that with transportation challenges right now. Yep. Employers are paying for transportation, funders are paying for transportation solutions, and we're starting to get some traction. So we may see that very same thing happen uh, to support women that are dealing with childcare issues. Yeah, we, we need, um, and look, I'm, you know, this, this uh, next sentence is a podcast for another time, but capitalism, we need <laughs> capitalism to do its thing. Now, capitalism has extreme pros <laughs> and extreme cons, but what it does well uh, is, okay, if childcare is X, it, you know, $4,000 a month, well, we need a $3,000 and a $2,000 a month option. And capitalism needs to find that. Now, do you get less at 3000 and 2000 Maybe. Is it maybe less flexible? I don't know. But like that exists everywhere. If you want to spend $100,000 on a car or 20000 you can do it. Why does that not exist in childcare? Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that. I think it's a perfect segue to, I, and this is not a popular opinion uh, among businesses right now, but I think it is also... The, the same equation for the workforce, right? It is, you know, you hear often people saying, well, nobody wants to work right now. And I think that the, the, the reality is that folks want to work for what they believe is a fair wage and for fair benefits and fair, a fair trade-off of their time for their compensation. And so when I think about 
childcare being a bigger barrier. It is about the cost of childcare, but it's also about work-life balance. It's about, you know, and we, we commissioned a study on what we call potential switchers. So people who are working, but aren't working in manufacturing. So what would make them consider coming to this industry from say healthcare or retail or what have you? And one of the, we assumed when we wrote the, these research questions, that we were going to hear that people were really interested in having high tech jobs where they could make a difference and and work with robots and do cool stuff. But what we heard instead, like people want that, sure, but what they really want is um, clarity from their hiring manager about what they're going to get in terms of benefits and the ability to have is both stability and flexibility, right? So it seems a little bit Occam's razor, catch 22, but the the bottom line is that folks wanna know what they're getting for their time, you know? And, and I think that in the case of women returning to the workforce, it might be help with childcare, whether that's on-site childcare for some of our larger employers yes. or, um, you know, publicly funded childcare or philanthropically funded childcare like Beth was talking about. But I think that's also, um, you know, and I'm a little bit of a broken record here, but, you know, flexible shift starts part-time. Let's talk, I was just um, talking with a manufacturer today who said they are testing out something where a candidate can say, I want to work from x to x on these days and they'll create a shift around that um so is there are there other ways that manufacturers can create that flexibility that a woman needs for childcare or whatever to go to school to uh work a second job because let's be honest a lot of people are doing that um so how do we how do we create the flexibility and the transparency that people are looking for so that they feel like they're getting as good a deal as you are? I think there are two things there that I wanted to follow up on. One is on-site childcare. What an opportunity Intel has. They're going to hire thousands of people. They're going to build a hundred thousand square foot, maybe even bigger building here in Columbus. Imagine the benefit. And again, companies are selfish imagine the PR they would get, right? Mm -hmm. Whether they do this with the goodness in their heart or not, imagine the PR they would get if Intel comes to Columbus and says, this is part of the package. You get hired here, you get childcare nine to three or nine to five, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so that's number one. And then number two is larger companies, companies that have a thousand plus employees should have government incentives to then give dollars back, not necessarily increase your salary, just specific dollars, almost like a HSA, here's $500 a month, it has to go to childcare, has to go there, right? Just like your HSA, if you invest here, it has to go here. So those two things, I think, why aren't we, and I get like, okay, it has to be a certain, if you're a startup with nine employees, that's a little tough. Um, but a lot of people can do this. And, and I don't, it, it's, it's all like, it's like anything else. The, the more, if you give good, you're going to get good in return. You know, if you treat people right, you're going to get treated right in return. I, I don't know why companies are afraid of that. Some. 
you know, I think you you did you didn't know you were setting me up, Paul, but you were setting me up perfectly to pitch sector partnerships because one of the things that I think is so valuable for those small companies, it, you know, we can't all have the purchasing power of an Intel or a Honda or a Google or an Amazon, but we can take 10 small employers and get them to figure out what their common needs are and they can make the same kind of asks of the government that one large company can. So that's where a sector partnership really is worth its weight in gold um, because, I, and I've been doing this work with, with partnerships for a long time. I can tell you that your needs are more common with your neighbor and your competitors than you think they are. Mm -hmm. And you would be surprised at how many businesses are willing to put competition aside when they realize that they can get more resources by working together than by competing for, you know, it's not that there aren't enough pieces of the pie. It's that like, we don't know how big the pie is. Um, I'm always making up these crazy metaphors that don't really make sense. But the no, point I, make, is, I like it. I like it. I'm going <laughs> to steal that. I work like together, that. get more pie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Um, all right. Well, listen, this was, this was great. Uh, you know, we always end every podcast with the same question, just a little fun one. Um, so Sarah, you I guess your answer can be Akron or Cleveland. Um, Beth, you'll be Cleveland area. Um, but what is your, your favorite restaurant can be breakfast, lunch, dinner, takeout, um, can be a hundred dollars a plate or a $10 burrito. Uh, Sarah, we'll start with you. Favorite, favorite spot. All right. So I, in the show notes, you had Cleveland restaurant. So I was, I was, I didn't think about Akron today. So forgive me locals. Um, but, and um, Beth mentioned Shaker Heights earlier. I am a big fan of um, banter. They have, they do corn dogs and poutine and they have um, a location in Shaker Heights in Van Aken market district that I really love. That is the first corn dog reference we've had. So that is that is a first. <laughs> nice. And for me, um, I I'm a Rocky River resident, and so I'm going. There's so many great food options in Cleveland, and so when I read that question, I was like, "Whoa, what the heck am I going to say here?" Uh, so I decided to stick with with where I live, um, and it's it's a tough decision, but I'm going to say Bucci's in Rocky River. It's okay. a, a hidden secret. I actually lived here. I'm ashamed to admit it. I lived here 20 years before I even tried it. Wow. Right. Stupid. It's a little <laughs> storefront in a, 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 like a, it's just in a, a building with a convenience store next door. I think there might be a dry cleaner and then Bucci's. Uh, but if you like Italian food, man, good stuff. Great stuff. Nice. Awesome. That's officially well, on my list. Yeah, that's a there good one. There you go. That's a good one. Um, well, listen, thank you both again for coming on. Uh, this was fantastic. And um, I'm sure we'll have you both on again soon. There's there's more to talk about. Always more work to be done. Um, but we appreciate the work that both of you guys do. And uh, yeah, good luck uh, with everything the rest of the year. And we'll talk soon. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so Paul. much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. 
The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.